All HCPs participating in this podcast are paid consultants of Johnson & Johnson Surgical Vision, Incorporated. Product indications and safety information will be available at the end of the episode. Welcome to the second episode in Fine-Tuned, a special series on presbyopia correcting IOLs. In the last podcast, we spoke to Dr. Michael Shapiro and Dr. Sandra Black on their personal experience with the Symphony IOL, not just in their patients, but also in their own eyes. They shared great information on the value of the extended range of vision. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Stephen Dell, the medical director at Dell Laser Consultants in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Dr. Dell. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Dell, I know you have a lot of great insights to share with us on how to approach presbyopia as a medical condition which affects should be treated and how you educate your patients. But I'd like to start off today with you elaborating on the cycle of enthusiasm and how your whole practice really orbits around this concept. Everything that you do in your practice in terms of marketing, building a referral network, or educating your staff, that's all predicated on the assumption that you can deliver great results. If you can't deliver great results, nothing else matters. Uh, You might have the best website, might have a great staff that's really focused on customer service, and you may have a very robust referral network. But if you're doing mediocre surgery and you're not delivering the results that patients anticipate, the whole thing will come off the rails. And more specifically, to be successful, you need to get your patients in and out of the operating room with a very low rate of complications while still achieving their refractive targets. If your patients are leaving surgery with high levels of astigmatism, with broken posterior capsules, or without achieving their desired visual acuity, they're not going to be happy patients that refer other patients. And your staff will take note of this. And your staff won't be able to talk to patients or make recommendations with the same level of enthusiasm and confidence. And that translates into any new patient that walks in the door. And to achieve that, you have to invest in state-of-the-art technology You have to be meticulous with your pre- and post-operative care, and you really have to pay attention to the ocular surface. You've got to get the patient to the point where they have a very healthy ocular surface. So the first thing we do is use our tools to assess the ocular surface for pathology. And so we use things like LipaView to image the meibomian gland structures and other tools to check on the quality of the mybum. And we make sure that the ocular surface is healthy so that we're obtaining a good and accurate corneal topography. We also use OCT or optical coherence tomography to screen for retinal pathology, as well as we want to rule out any ancillary conditions that the patient might have, like visual field defects due to glaucoma or retinal problems. So we want to know about any of these other conditions that might affect the patient's vision postoperatively so that we can make the patient aware of those things preoperatively. So in addition to getting the patient tuned up from an ocular surface standpoint, we want to address and communicate uh, the existence of any additional pathology to the patient. Uh, When we're working the patient up for surgery, I think This goes back to what I said about having state-of-the-art technology. We use laser interferometry to measure the patient's axial length. 
We use modern IOL formulae uh, and we want high quality keratometry readings so that we can dial in and uh, zoom in closely on the patient's best postoperative results. So it's not really one thing that we're doing. It's a whole series of many things, many precise steps that we take to arrive at the surgical outcome that we want. But the end result of this is an elated patient who comes back and says, I'm really excited. This is one of the best things I've ever done. And that patient's enthusiasm is contagious, which makes it really easy for you and for your staff to recommend these technologies in an honest way to the next potential patient. And that kind of genuine belief in a technology can't be faked. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great point, that if your staff doesn't believe the messaging they've been taught to use, it'll sabotage all your efforts. Now that we have that established, let's talk about where you begin with educating patients regarding the choices they will need to make, which, of course, will impact their vision for the rest of their lives. Well, if you have an optometric referral base, then the process of education really starts with the optometrist. The primary eye care provider needs to be knowledgeable about the different IOL options so that when the patient is informed that they need to go see a cataract surgeon, the option of presbyopia correction can be brought up at that time if it's appropriate. Even though the patient is probably not ready to make a decision at that point regarding what type of technology they want, and the optometrist may not be making a specific recommendation at that stage, at least the conversation gets started. We facilitate this by providing continuing education for our optometric colleagues that, that explains how advanced technologies work. We provide them with educational materials that can be given to the patient. And these brochures not only let the patient know how to contact us, but also inform them of different IOL options that are available. Many IOL manufacturers have brochures that can be used directly or can be customized, but we actually prefer to create our own. And there's so much information that is dumped on a patient at the initial consultation that it's often best not to have them make any kind of decision at that particular point that's gonna impact their vision for the rest of their lives. They may need to think about it. They may need to discuss it with a family member. Once they enter our practice, we use a questionnaire to survey our patients about what their visual goals actually are and what compromises they're willing to accept in order to achieve those goals. And that becomes a jumping off point to educate the patient regarding the different IOL options available. Okay, can you give me more detail on the questionnaire? I imagine you have to be more specific than just what are your goals and what compromises can you accept, right? Sure. Uh, specifically, we ask patients whether they have the goal of functioning without spectacles. And if so, is that for distance, intermediate, or near? We also specify what kind of activities happen at each of those distances so that we're using a common vocabulary. And then we try to drill down and get a handle on what their near and intermediate working distances are. For example, if they spend a lot of time working on a desktop, their working distance might be 30 inches away from their eyes. Or maybe it's a laptop or a tablet, which are generally held much closer to their eyes. So we, do, we try to figure out their habitual usage patterns 
so that we can tailor the available technology to their individual needs. Okay, got it. I understand that the way you frame the questions also serves to educate the patient that their visual tasks are actually sorted into three different distance ranges and that they may gain or lose some of that range depending on what lens they choose. Can you speak to that a little more? Right. So with the questionnaire, we try to force patients to make some choices that perhaps they don't want to make. We present the situation where they will see very well up close for reading, but that might make their intermediate vision, which they use for desktop computers or looking in the refrigerator, a little weaker. We ask them to choose in which situation they prefer to see without glasses. We also ask them if they had to wear glasses for one particular uh, range of vision or set of tasks, where would they be most willing to wear glasses? We also include questions about accepting some degree of dysphotopsia in exchange for a presbyopia correcting lens. It might be only a minor compromise in their night vision, but some patients are unwilling to accept any visual compromise, even if they means, that means that they can't get their presbyopia corrected. These are all decisions that can be teased out with a good questionnaire while also educating the patient that there are compromises and they will have to make choices. Sometimes patients make contradictory choices, such as they may say that they really want to see well up close without glasses, but they are also willing to wear glasses to read. That's a clue that we need to step in and say, okay, which of these goals is most important to you and where are we willing to make some compromises? Once it's framed in those terms, patients are pretty accepting of the limits of technology and typically have very realistic expectations. Okay, yeah. So framing it the right way is incredibly important. And then how do you go about creating that consistent message and vocabulary among your staff? We conduct regular educational opportunities for all of our staff that focus on these advanced technologies. And we also try to make patient satisfaction our top priority. But that goes back to the cycle of success that I discussed before. When the staff sees all these really happy patients coming back elated and reporting how well they're seeing, that instills confidence and enthusiasm in the staff that I could never really generate with a training meeting or even great incentives. And they wind up recommending these advanced technology lenses because they know how happy patients can be with them. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, there's something subconscious that's present when you truly believe in what you're offering. Okay, so moving on to the next step. How does your office present lens options to patients? Sure, I think we present lens options a little differently compared to how most practices do it. When a patient comes in and has a cataract and presbyopia, and they're a medical candidate for a presbyopia correcting lens, we tell them that they have both of these conditions and we can address both their cataract and their presbyopia using the most advanced technology and that has a cost associated with it. If they decline our first option, we offer to correct their astigmatism, if it's appropriate to do so, so that they can have the best possible distance vision. And that's a great option for patients who don't particularly mind using glasses for close-up and intermediate work. If they decline that, then they can 
just have regular cataract surgery without any astigmatism correction with the understanding that they will probably need glasses for distance, mid-range, and near. And that's a perfectly good option. It's a little bit different than the way most practices approach it, but I really feel that if the, pan, if the patient is a candidate, we should offer to correct all of their medical conditions as their first choice option. So the final topic I want to touch upon with you today is the follow-up care and communicating back to the referring doctor. Are there unique considerations following the implantation of an advanced technology lens? We believe in the collaborative eye care model. So we support patients who prefer to return to their primary eye care provider for their post-operative care. We use the same continuing education opportunity to discuss the technology and how to manage these patients post-operatively. But the primary eye care provider needs to understand that an extended depth of focus IOL is refracted differently than a standard IOL. And multifocal IOLs can be targeted for different zones for near. So the optometrist needs to be aware of what technology was used and what the surgical goals were. Another important factor is that multifocal and extended depth of focus lenses are more sensitive to posterior capsular opacification than monofocal implants. And the near vision is the first thing to be affected when PCO presents. So if the patient's near vision is degrading, we'll typically perform a YAG capsulotomy to correct that. So So we make certain to educate our referral network and we return patients to their primary eye care doctor with the information needed to properly care for the patient in the post-operative period. Thank you, Dr. Dell. This has certainly been insightful. So that completed our second installment in this special series on presbyopia correcting IOLs. I hope you'll all join us next time with Dr. Daniel Chang as he discusses the value of good intermediate vision. Bye for now. Indications and important safety information for LipidView 2 ocular surface interferometer. Prescription only. Indications. The LipidView 2 ocular surface interferometer is an ophthalmic imaging device that is intended for use by a physician in adult patients to capture, archive, manipulate, and store digital images of specular interferometric observations of the tear film. Using these images, LipidView 2 measures the absolute thickness of the tear film lipid layer. Mybomian glands under near-infrared NIR illumination. The ocular surface and eyelids under white illumination. Contraindications. Contraindications are conditions in which the device should not be used because the risk of use clearly outweighs any benefit. No contraindications have been identified for LipidView 2. Precautions. The following patient conditions may affect the interferometry assessment of a patient's tear film using LipidView 2. Use of ophthalmic drops, such as artificial tear lubricants, ointments, and medications. Advise patients not to instill oil-based ophthalmic drops, for example, soothe, restasis, sustain balance, for at least 12 hours prior to device use, and not to instill ointments for at least 24 hours prior to device use. Wait at least four hours after the installation of all ophthalmic drops prior to device use. Soft or rigid contact lens wear. Advise patients to remove contact lenses at least four hours prior to device use. Use of oil-based facial cosmetics around the eye. 
Eye rubbing. Recent swimming in a chlorinated pool. Advise patients not to swim for at least 12 hours prior to device use. Any ocular surface condition that affects the stability of the tear film. These conditions include disease, dystrophy, trauma, scarring, surgery, or abnormality. Adverse effects. There are no known or anticipated adverse effects associated with the use of this device. Attention, reference the LipiView 2 ocular surface interferometer instructions for use for a complete listing of indications, warnings, and precautions. Premium.